Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here with returning champion Natasha Leonard. Hi guys. How you doing? Hi. How's it good. going? It's going it's going good. It's Sunday, so I'm fuzzy, but it's all good. <laughs> That's allowed. This is we, a safe space for fuzziness. Good. And we haven't so. seen you in an entire week since the uh, HM panel. Oh, yeah. The historical materialism panel for Indeed. those that don't just speak New York. <laughs> Rebel hipster. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a fun one. And is it true you're coming directly from a bachelorette party? I am. This is the most un-antifada un thing ever. It oh, that's a, beautiful. We it was a long, it. a long weekend of... of someone about to be getting married and getting drunk with other girls and other substances so. <laughs> good times i myself had a bachelorette party before i married sean and it was i i think i've gone on the record before saying i could have done like 50 percent less drugs <laughs> still had a really good and drug-filled time let's be honest that's pretty much every weekend of yours but you could be 70% less drugs and still be drugs. Yeah. I mean, same. <laughs> a little goes a long way, depending what we're talking about. Um, that was, yeah, um, mescaline, folks. It's a, it's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is a whole thing. It's never mix it with LSD no, multiple a, times in one week. It's a really bad idea. It's a really good, bad idea. Uh, Jamie, it's, it's springtime. Did you have something you wanted to say to the listeners about this wonderful time of the year? Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, the sun is shining, the birds are horny, I think, <laughs> I've heard, I heard some of them on my way here, um, and we hope all of you godless commies out there have a happy ancient blood ritual, wherein we <laughs> defile Norman Rockwell paintings of the nuclear family with the blood and other fluids from our sex rituals, so that the whore of Babylon might rise again in the form of our dark queen, Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's what that bachelorette party uh, was. Okay. I, I can't wait till that becomes our state religion. <laughs> Same. Or stateless religion, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. uh, how about um, stuff that's administratively related? Like, I don't know, promotions? You got some stuff for us you want to plug? Jamie Peck of the Antifada? <laughs> You can cut oh all that out if that, that was really bad. No, segment. that was funny when you were talking to that uh, HM person about uh, family abolition oh, yeah. and uh, like abolishing marriage in the bourgeois family. And you really wanted to call me out like my wife. <laughs> but you totally resisted the urge. And you were like, oh, but it was lost at a bar by Jamie Pet <laughs> Antifada. <laughs> I was like, I see what you did. Uh, there. It's trolling you. A it's my wife me. by any other name is still a, a my wife. See, when I, when I go back to the conference on a Sunday when you're all too hungover to go and I get all the interviews myself I'm allowed to talk shit about you and that's fine it's fine that's how we work oh my god all right so um yeah a little bit of housekeeping um our show relies on your support as always um you can listen to most of it for free, and then we have some bonuses for our patrons. You know the drill. Um, so our prize packs are done. We hit our last goal of 666 patrons. That's so a lot. Thank you, everybody. Nailed it. We nailed yeah. it. Um, that we flew past that. We were supposed to get that by May Day, but we beat it. And so thank you to the listeners before Jamie goes on. But also big Props to uh, AP Andy, who really kind of brought the whole thing together, stuffed most of the envelopes, and uh, really got that off the ground. So. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I said that as if you didn't say thanks. <laughs> uh, you were welcome. feeling it. You're welcome, dicks. 
Uh, keep us honest. So <laughs> those prize packs are done. I'm sure Andy's very happy that he's completed that project. But um, if you didn't get one and you had one coming, let me know. DM me on Patreon or on Discord or Twitter. Yeah. Uh, there's a few things left I can send you. Oh, that's that's very nice. Going above and beyond, always. <laughs> that's what we do. That's our anarcho mapache. So yeah. those are mostly done, but we're working on some cool new things, like t-shirts and our live show. So hopefully the t-shirts will be available in time for our live show, which will be sometime this summer in Brooklyn. Stay tuned for a date on that. Um, I also want to plug my appearance that i'm doing at the katie helper and struggle session live show at littlefield may 10th two great tastes that oh taste i think i'm together. there too i think i'm on that maybe possibly the flyer says oh, maybe i'm not i'm doing something with katie soon so maybe not but i'll be at yours i'll the, come and watch the you flyer sure. says right. you're a liar the flyer <laughs> says it's me and jake flores and matt taibbi oh yeah I'm not maybe you're the surprise guest and i just ruined it I didn't know that, but I'm doing something with that soon. But either way, I will be there watching you and oh, screaming yeah. you on. Hell awesome. Yeah. I'll Likewise. be at your thing, too. Um, assuming it's not also the same, the same thing. thing. <laughs> we'll see. We'll TBD. See. Um, also, I wanted to plug, because I can, the DSA, North Brooklyn DSA fundraiser party that I am helping to throw at Transpicos on May 4th, yeah. featuring the drag stylings of Comrade Barbie, <laughs> uh, DJ's Black Betty, and Dr. Mister, and probably more TBA. So come out to that. I folks. heard Black Betty had a child recently. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can bring her like a little push present or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Bring presents for Black Betty's child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Nothing too sharp. <laughs> so I want to take a moment to say something about the uh, fire that happened at Notre Dame Cathedral recently. Um, we, we've seen a lot of takes from the left and from the right. Uh, we saw a lot of people on the one hand sort of uh, turning my timeline into a, a gallery of their Paris vacation photos. <laughs> and on the other hand, some kind of dumb, dumb leftists like... Oh, the, the the symbol of Western imperialism is burning. That's fucking great. And then on on the other other hand, some right wingers like uh, you know Ben Shapiro or whoever saying like, oh, we're losing such a great monument to the West. And you know, as Brianna Joy Gray pointed out, I'm pretty sure it's a monument to God, <laughs> uh, not the the quote unquote the West, which is a concept that didn't even exist. When this cathedral was built, six to one half dozen. So, there, um, there was also, did you hear the Glenn Beck? Thing. Oh, yes. Uh, so apparently Glenn Beck speculated on the day uh, that the fire began, quote, if this was started by Islamists, I don't think you'll find out about it. Mm. Yeah, because, uh, it France, because France has built its entire politics around not offending Muslims. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely a thing that we hear out of France all the time. So some really bad takes all around. So um, I, I have one more that I'd like to add, yeah, actually, if I may. Yeah. And that's. Uh, you don't have to have a take on everything. Dead Some ass. people are trying a little too hard to have a take, and it shows. So maybe, like, just, just think before you tweet, folks. We talk about theory on this show. We talk about practice on this show. This is a praxis moment. <laughs> you do not have to tweet about it. No. You don't have to do a Facebook story about it. If you're sad at Cathedral burnt, that's cool. If you don't have any feelings whatsoever, that's cool, too. But not everything's <laughs> fucking political. Sorry. Yeah. Not, it's not. 
I mean, it is, but also it isn't. Right? It is and it is. I mean, I definitely had no takes. No, no Notre Dame takes. No takes at all. I will I admit. It was sad. I will admit when I first saw the footage, I'm like. Oh no, the Gilets Jaunes have gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> I found out it wasn't them, and I was like, "Oh, uh, it's just okay. It's just, it's just a fire." Very Sometimes it's just a fire. It started yeah. by accident. It's, it was an act of God, as they it say. It is what oh. it is. Although I do not. Oh God, I, ha- I have a take. Uh, I'm not. It's uh, not. Oh, oh. Uh, the, the, people are giving money to the Catholic Church, mm. and that's that's weird. A billion, and, a billion dollars. Yes. Yeah. And not just billionaires giving billions. There were just like people giving their money to one of the richest organizations on the entire planet in history. So uh, and It sounds like the most compelling theory of why it burnt down was because they were being way too cheap yeah. about yes. it, <laughs> it was and, not, yeah. and not just closing it entirely. Mm. Mm. Yeah, That's what I heard. Maybe, so. maybe we need to open the books on the Catholic Church there and see uh, if we could Good be better using some resources. I wonder uh, if there's something dodgy going on with the Catholic Church. Insert, no. insert uh, pedophilia joke here. Moving on. <laughs> Does anybody else have any bad takes they saw or have about the Notre Dame? And then we just let it rest because it was an accident. It's not political. Just, just let it go, man. Just let it go. Right? Let it go. Well, I, I think maybe someday we will need to have some sort of UNESCO... <laughs> Like after the rev, <laughs> to keep all of the feral Zoomers who the hate. And Prim feral like the, Zoomers. The and Prim, but also Maoist, uh, feral Generation Z monsters from burning down <laughs> every old thing that they see. <laughs> and, you know, probably killing and eating the elderly as well. <laughs> Blowing up the, uh, the Eiffel Tower because it's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of like uh, phallocentric uh, yeah. patriarchal the capitalism. Binary. Get yeah. rid of it. The situationists right. already did that. <laughs> Late pass Zoomers. <laughs> Late pass hypothetical zoomers. <laughs> All right, so remember that, folks, in the program, uh, we do probably have to defend uh, certain landmarks to human civilization, like Angkor Wat. Well, you or can just live Notre in it. Dame. Don't burn it. Just you're, go live in it. Live in it. Yeah, live in it. Some kind of like multi-denominational yeah. space for whatever kind of weird spirituality we're going to have oh, that in the future. Up, uh, that weird sex party yeah, thing exactly. we're talking about. Yeah, sex ritual <laughs> thing. You know, we can do that on like uh, Saturdays, and they can do like the, the Jesus stuff on Sundays, sure. or whatever. We it's can fine. share. It's it belongs to everyone. All right. Because like, as some people have pointed out, uh, Notre Dame was not constructed by some like king with a good idea. It was constructed by generations of workers who worked really hard and most of them never even got to see it finished. So at at least on that level, like that much embodied labor, let's let's keep it where it is. And in some sense, that's like our struggle to build a stateless, classless society. You know, some of us. It's a lovely metaphor. Some of us, uh, you know, we people laid the stones and the generations carry on with this project and we might not get to see it in our lifetimes but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it's not worth doing guys can i just say that was an extreme take for something (laughs) that we were going to have like few or passing no take takes on like you've moved from like let's you know we don't have to politicize that too what about the entire structure of all our politics as triggered by like a moving thought about tweets about Notre Dame. Yeah. So good job of that not Much like so our friend uh, Slovoy, we <laughs> no. speak in dialectics. We're not talking about him. Yeah, we're not doing that. Much like he who shall no. not be named. <laughs> we're not talking about any of those two people. Moving we, on. There's only one, Back to the church. There's only one Mapache on this podcast. Uh, no, we're off of that church. We're, we're off that shit now. We're um, done. There's, there's another little uh, news item, and it's important actually because it's, it's part of the Antifada lore, in fact. It's, it's canon. So now people might not remember all the way back to November 4th of 2017, but that was an extremely important date. 
uh, crackpots, fucking maggotruds all over the country were literally prepping for a second civil war because they alleged that on that date, November 4th, 2017 millions of antifa super soldiers were going to rise to overthrow the constitution take away everyone's guns and of course as is our practice behead white parents on mass uh basically it's like the plot of that film us but kind of way cooler uh truth is uh alex jones and gateway pundit uh kind of blew up our spot the uh, executive council of the amalgamated antifas of America decided to call the whole thing off at the last minute. Uh, Jamie and I and uh, Andy, as elected you know, leadership of New York City uh, regional antifa, we voted for a compromise that was like maybe on November 4th, we only be had like half the white parents, you know, but we were completely overruled. And that's democracy, folks. Um, so why is this important? Well, A, it's because, you know, that's where Antifada super soldiers came from, right? This panic from a couple of years back. But a news item came out in The Guardian on uh, 420 uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, about a um, Republican state senator from Washington state. He had been, they just found out, organizing psyops and self-defense squads against Antifa super soldiers communicating with and organizing with far-right and fascist militias in the area. And The Guardian found some of the screenshots about what this Republican state senator, this powerful man, was going to do to these leftist insurrectionaries. You want to hear a little bit of it? It's bad, folks. Um, Do we need a trigger warning on this? Well, I read to Tosh, maybe the most disgusting one from this article. We won't do that one. Yeah, I don't think that's for the... It's bad. Your precious is, my sweet friend. Suffice it to say that it's worse than what I'm about to read. So these are texts from uh, the fascists and the state senator. Texts from the fascists. I don't even know what kind of... (laughs) Tumblr.com. Unicorn riot. I'm not sure what voice or accent I should do this in. Uh, I don't know. When we locate Antifa members, we can confront their parents, their workplaces, their landlords. We can hit them in their safe spaces. They're, of course, being misspelled. Their safe safe space is their job? What? (laughs) This should become a pure PSYOPs operation. If we can catch a few of them alone and work them over a little bit, presumably that will take care of that problem. So that's some scary shit, right, guys? I mean, that's... Who uh, sent that text? That was between the far-right... Uh, paramilitaries and that Republican state senator who were preparing for the uh, Antifa Second Revolutionary War. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's really good. So, I mean, it's kind of a joke, you know, how seriously these people took something that was never a real thing. There was never actually a plan. It was like some little RCP rally that they were going to have blew up on the Internet. Alex Jones got a hold of it and Glenn Beck and all these people and turned it into this real panic, you know, on the, these maggots. Oh, they like much like the preppers who were just like rearing for a chance to oh, yeah. shoot all of the marauding <laughs> urban gangs who were after exactly. their canned goods. Like these people just they want you to give them a reason. Yeah, I mean, there is that element to it, right? Um, But in all seriousness, at the same time, um, we also saw that there was this uh, anti-migrant militia leader in New Mexico who was arrested this weekend because he and his group were detaining migrants themselves on the border by gunpoint, right? So this is a is this is a real thing, right? This is a real threat. Uh, this sort of elective affinity and often uh, collaboration between right wing elements and also the state, uh, you know, combining with these paramilitary and street organizations like Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys. So 
you know, there's a lot. People talk a lot of shit. You know, anti-fascist organizing is just like LARPing against a threat that's either unreal or marginal. But we really do need to be looking at these sort of things and confronting in various ways this really scary and fucked up intersection between fascists and state violence uh, that only seems to be growing, even as the alt-right groups we saw in Charlottesville, you know, last year seem to be on their back foot. There is a real sort of uh, crossover, you know, between the, these far-right folks in the streets and on the borders with guns and also, of course, cops with guns oh, yeah. and racist views. Well, I, I just saw a tweet... Uh that came out yesterday uh, by someone named Satan worshiper, like the (laughs) vegan food. food. Mm. Yeah. At the Liberty lamp. And they said, Oh look, when I said most cops would be celebrating Hitler's birthday today, I wasn't really joking. Look who's attending Jovi Val's Fash Bash Hitler birthday party what? in Pennsylvania today with an NYCPD 75th precinct sweatshirt. Cop? LARPer? Either way, my statement stands. And there is a picture so uh, the guy at the Fash Bash uh, wearing a 75th precinct sweatshirt. I mean, it's possible he just likes that precinct. Well, I was going to say, it's fair. You give him the benefit of the doubt. He might not be a cop. He might not even be in favor of all cops. That might just be his favorite precinct. I mean, everyone's got <laughs> their favorite got a something. Favorite precinct. Yeah, it's like um, a, your favorite ice cream uh, flavor. Look at this asshole. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's there's what's nutty about. I mean, there's there's never been a kind of U.S. military or police organization that has not had infiltration and crossover with white supremacists like it throughout the history from you know slave patrols onwards um and there was just just a few months ago the new york times magazine had this big piece by janet reitman whom i now hate well i probably already did but i didn't know her until after this um that kind of prima facie looked like a good revelation about how like the state doesn't give a shit about white supremacy and hadn't been following the kind of rise in this. Oh, the DOJ shutting down. Yeah, and like all the kind of investigations into white supremacist organizing and terrorism and naming it terrorism that didn't happen. But if you look a little deeper, you see how fucked up the framing of the piece was in that it sort of suggested there was the state and it dropped the ball or purposefully like like wittingly didn't pay enough attention to this separate entity that was white supremacy. And then with a few references to cops on the ground during protests, giving preference to neo-Nazis going for Antifa instead. But what Reitman completely failed to mention at all, and which I then wrote about and she got angry at me about, is that these aren't just two groups that interact occasionally. There is vast intersection. Well, it seems like a good transition to talk about why you're here today. You are putting out a book on May 1st. Uh, um, yeah, it comes out on April 31st, but same okay. thing. Yes. There's an April 31st? Or is it the 30th? I don't know. Yeah. Again, very <laughs> fuzzy. It comes out the day before. Verso made up an entire day. They make a, there is no book and there is no launch and I'm not here. Um, yeah, it comes out very soon and the party is on May 2nd. So and it's right. called Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. And uh, I guess we should send some of those to some cops and some border <laughs> militias so Ooh, they can that, learn a thing or two. Yeah. Oh, go on, please. <laughs> if they only just knew more about, you know, fascism and anti-fascism. If we they only might had a nice right civil debate. Yeah. Well, I really you know, Wittgenstein like says <laughs> that tactically you can't define a game. <laughs> <laughs> that, Andy just basically summed up my book. That's actually a bad framing for the book. Uh, it's a collection of essays. A lot of them are about your report on J20, on Standing Rock, on the surveillance state. 
but also a, a lot of you is in the book and a lot of your interaction with these stories and kind of what's been going on in your life being a journalist and being a you know a dissident and an activist in New York. And not pretending that there is a uh, separation between your journalism and also your advocacy for um, yeah. anti-capitalism oh, yeah. and anti-state. Absolutely. This is something that I think about a lot, too, as I'm trying to figure out how to write and sell a book, <laughs> which is like... Uh, you don't want to be just writing about yourself, right? Yeah. And it's like no one cares about a lot of no and, one should care. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't. And I, <laughs> I always want to err on the side, uh, at least for the well, for some of my career, I've wanted to err on the side of not writing about myself because I feel like the second a woman starts speaking in the first person, mm. everyone's like, "Oh, save it for your live journal, you <laughs> stupid girl." But like, uh, you are a person with a point of view. And it also shouldn't be not about yourself at all, right? Like, we shouldn't pretend like we're some, like, disembodied brain floating around just observing and analyzing things because that's not real either. And I think you have struck a very good balance between them. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. So I didn't... Um, Andy and I were talking about this before, and he was like, oh, I didn't really expect it would be, like, a have, like, memoir elements. I was like, oh, shit, does it? Like, that was not my intent at all because I fucking hate that um but uh jamie's book is also gonna be a memoir by the way but like i just this idea that like it's like this i like what you know how old are we like i'm 32 what are you like 30 34 34 oh i thought you were younger. looking good girl oh, why thank you um I'll take it. you know it's like the idea of like what does it mean to write memoir when you're our age and um i think the idea is more like you can have fragments of which is what i understand you're gonna be doing as well when in your book is that you take fragments from your life that are maybe like relevant political moments or points at which you realize certain analysis is necessary for the way activists interact together and the way communities build and the way certain politics are being framed. And so you include yourself in it because that's the kind of position from when you're writing. But I'm not so interested in like my own development, I guess. It's more um, myself as just a point of departure um, because obviously I'm writing about things that I've been around for, like J20, like uh, anti-fascist actions, like the shift in discourse around radical sexuality in activist circles, like... Black Lives Matter. Like Black Lives Matter yeah. activism and the way media frames violence and riots, like having a really fucking shitty anarchist, manicist ex-husband mm -hmm. who tried to make having threesomes an act of liberation. In fact, that's not that. Um, you know, complicated things like that. So I suppose inevitably at the numerous points in the book involve me, but I think it would be a failure of a book. It was just about me because I wouldn't read that. Um, but uh, yeah, to give it a bit more framing as well, it's not a brand, you know, it's a collection of essays. So a number of them were written a few years ago um, and were published in various magazines and journals and then some of them are new or rewritten um or restructured to kind of be useful in the now um so yeah so it's, that's also the funny thing too is like when you compile something that you didn't mean to be a kind of distinct object when you were creating the parts it feels weird to be like oh look have i ended up with a memoir oh shit well maybe but hopefully it's uh one with some fun political analysis and disruptive theorizing. It's, uh, I like what you wrote in the intro of the book, how sometimes it's only apparent in retrospect 
when the stuff you're writing is kind of coalescing around a theme. Mm -hmm. And the theme here is sort of a a broad analysis of what anti-fascism can mean in practice um, and in in theory and practice, really. Um, So let's start with a really basic question. Um, which is how do you define fascism in this book? Because it's an interesting definition and I think a little different than a lot of other ones that I've heard. Yeah, I mean, so I use the term quite capaciously. Like, I'm not interested in um, restricting how often we use the term fascist in some ways. It, It will lose its importance or magic or ability to activate if we say it too much. Because we had so much of that, right, when especially like Donald Trump's campaign was gaining grounds and there was this kind of ocean of ink and digital ink spilt about, you know, is Donald Trump a fascist? Will this be a fascist regime? Are we living under fascism? And back and forth, back and forth, yes, no, yes, no, in a way that completely ignored that we've definitely had broader definitions and rethought what fascism could be after the end of the Second World War. This is not just a regime-based constitutive governmentality. Like, it's not just something that you only find in hearing in one specific government with X, Y, Z, very specific immutable characteristics. Um, Umberto Eco made this point in, like, the 90s that we might think about fascism in the same way we think about lots and lots of context, concepts, um, which is how Wittgenstein, who Andy knows I have a love for, talked about in terms of the way we talk about games as a concept. So he described that as the family resemblance theory of naming. Um, So you can't give me one definition of the word game that will necessarily apply correctly to every single example of the thing that we of a thing we would want to call game. Sorry, this is rambling. I am hungover. No, no, um, no, no, so, you know, what does tennis have in common with uh, soccer, football? Like, they both have balls, but, you know, different amounts of people playing. Do you have to be on a team? No, because you can play a game with yourself. Does there have to be a winner? No, necessarily. So basically, you can go on and on and on and realize there's not one set of distinct and closed definitions of things that all of which if you explain them that will be game i think fascism works the same way so you can have um you know authoritarianism militaristic tendencies uh nationalisms xenophobias misogynies news basically there can be a whole collection of things that um enough if there's a Venn, enough of that venn diagram is present it makes sense and is useful to call something a fascist action or event or activity and I think I'm more interested in the book and in general in talking about fascism as a set of tendencies and effects and affects and habits that cohere in certain collectivities be they a police force be they neo-nazis uh, the neo-Nazis of Identity Europa. Um, and it's more interesting to look for those tendencies and think about why is it useful to call them fascist and not just, I don't know, very right-wing or nationalist. Um, and my feeling of that is that there's something about fascism in the way it's formed and driven by sets of desire, desire for authority, desire to live within and enact authority, um, 
that I think very much speaks to fascist behaviors and fascist communities. And if we understand it that way, we then understand we have to fight at that level and not at the level of civil debate. So for me, having a very capacious and broad understanding of fascism as tendency and behavior beyond just, you know, how similar is Trump to Hitler or Mussolini is important because I think it informs how we respond to what I would want to call those kind of fascist behaviors. Rant over. So we've talked about this this kind of definition of fascism before, mm. and and sort of my my pushback is like you know Marxists and and revolutionaries have this sort of historical understanding of fascism as like this thing that happens during a certain time period, and then there's like neo fascism or like fascistic elements of liberal the liberal bourgeois nation state mm-hmm. that we can see, uh, but they're still you know express themselves in liberal ways, and then there's Antifa, <laughs> the real fascist. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sure. Uh, but you, I think you actually define it. Well, you don't define what you mean by fashion so much, but you. Because that's the point. I don't think it's one definition. But, but yeah, but yeah you, you kind of point the reader in the direction of like the way you're trying to think about it in the, I believe, the first chapter. Um, so I'll read a little bit of that. Um, you, so you talk about these everyday fascisms, uh, quote, micro fascisms with, with and by which we live. Um, the fascist anti fascist dichotomy. Indeed, there is a certain impossibility to quote anti-fascist as an identity among the 20th century thinkers who have built on Reich's Wilhelm Reich's idea of a perverted desire for fascism. Perhaps the most notable are the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze and psychoanalyst Felix Guattari. They wrote that it is quote too easy to be anti-fascist on the molar level and not even see the fascist inside of you. Um, And then the, the famous uh, Foucault introduction to anti-Oedipus is, quote, uh, the fascism in, all, in us all, in our head, and in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. And then later you say, we cannot simply be anti-fascist. We must also practice and make better habits, forms of life, rather than as noun or adjective, anti-fascist as gerund, verb, a constant effort of anti-fascisting, against the fascisms that even we ourselves uphold. Um, so I, I think that was kind of the key yeah. to the book. Uh, and then through the different stories that you analyze, that kind of question arises again and again in looking at these different struggles and in the struggles of your own life. And um, I was, Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so that. Um, and I also think the the kind of thread throughout the book that makes this idea of anti-fascisting and creating better habits and disrupting bad tendencies um, is also a way of, like, the thread throughout is also seeing what's wrong with the standard liberal centrist response to so many of these these problems. Um, and uh, the, so the thread throughout would also be like, oh, just demanding, well, we should just speak truth to power. Because if you just say enough of truth, then things will be fixed. Or we should decry, we should go, if they go low, we go high, decry all counter-violent anti-fascist riots or ca- decry uh, the rebels of Ferguson and Baltimore. Um, or see fascism as um, Trump's tone in his uh, tweets or something like right, that. Right, and just and to only wait for it to be this very obvious spectacle that can just be grouped, named, and then debated with or spoken truth against, as opposed to a complicated set of assemblages that take all different kinds of disruption and can creep up in places that 
we might not even want to admit. And that doesn't mean that like there are no distinctions, right? I think I put in that same essay, just because we can all, we are all living through and by various micro fascisms um, and different like desires for authority and power and all those problematics that shape us all too much. Um, it doesn't mean we're all necessarily going to become neo-Nazis, right? There are different spaces that nurture that sort of thing and tendencies and we're not all just like little abject or fascists in the making um but i think looking in terms of tendencies and actions and how these things get fostered um is much much more useful and effective tactically even than just being like oh well they actually say they're white nationalists so i think it's different i actually quite like i just started a book um by Bubla traverso from Verso. Um, Enzo, Enzo, Enzo Traverso, Verso. yeah. I just started it. Um, and he talks about post-fascism right, of right. the moment, which I quite like, actually, because it speaks to this being a kind of, you know, pastiche phenomenon of, like, fascisms of old that are certainly in transition, in transit, newly remaking themselves, but certainly... And to say post does not mean after, it means incorporated, mm. as in mm. postmodern doesn't mean we're not still living in modernism. Mm. Um, so I thought that was useful. Just That's not in my book. I just started, st- just started his book. So maybe buy his book instead. I don't know. There's a great episode of uh, The Regrettable Century, which is a cool podcast I've started listening to, and they uh, talk about that Enzo Traverso uh, okay. concept in depth. So people can check that out. So, okay. I'm kind of a baby Marxist, as you guys know. I'm, I'm baby. <laughs> not a sexy baby, not, just no, a baby. No, no. De- sexy babies are canceled. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm sort of still wrapping my mind around the different conceptions of the world, um, like the more idealist way of thinking about things, the more materialist way of thinking about things. And I did see some parallels in how you talk about fascism to how a writer like Ta-Nehisi Coates might talk about racism as this sort of uh, this, this structure that's made up of individuals and it's kind of this eternal uh, bad thing that lurks in the hearts of humans that um, people can really only fight by like doing the work on an individual basis to like be less racist or whatever. Um, but I feel like that's not exactly what you're getting at with that so like how How would you contrast yours so yeah i would say it's super different because and i mean like look i i have not done a deep dive on what tana the whole like tanahesi debate around like the essential the essentialisms of racism i'm not saying there's a kind of fascist core to us all i think under the conditions in which we live there are certain kind of habits and tendencies that are fostered around authority, hierarchy, power, and exclusion. A lot of which, when given space and form and resentment, um, all, and, you know, Twitter and Pepe frogs and marching and anger, these things can develop into what we might call, like, uh, fascist assemblages. But that's not because we're all just kind of sitting with a deep fascist, like, it's... Right, it's, it's not a, like it's human a, nature. Yeah, no, it's, it's a set of that, tendencies uh, and, that develop. And those and tendencies... Maybe these are, tendencies yeah, they're they learned, arise, they're they, mediated by... They, by, arise, they arise structurally, mm. essentially, you're saying. There's historically specific... Historically specific, and... Yeah. and um, so, you know, I, 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 if there was some thought experiment of people living under wildly different conditions, I wouldn't say, like, oh, but, like, you know open up deep inside they've got like a fascist gene inside them like it's a very non-essentialist understanding but it also sees 
proto-fascisms in the structure of capitalism and the authorities and hierarchies it demands and is maintained through. Um, so it's refusing this distinction as fascism as aberration from the now. Right, right. It doesn't mean it's a determined continuation of the now. Like it doesn't have to be an extension of capitalism, but it, but it, capitalism does nonetheless bring it forth. And, and Bertolt Brecht made that point in 1936. Like those who, I think the quote is something like those who would decry, misquoting Brecht is like a really big mood right now. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna make up a Brecht quote that's a big mood, Sunday. Um, he said something like those who would decry fascism but refuse to critique the capitalism from, from whence it came or from which mm. it was birthed um, are like meat eaters who want the butcher to give them the clean slice of meat but don't want to see it get yeah. the animal get so cut up I guess that's old break 1936 <laughs> um, that's probably right so I guess the difference then maybe is that there is a material basis for this fascism that lives in us all and you know obviously it works with certain contingencies of human potentials human nature whatever which isn't like a static thing but it changes based on lots of different things um, so that means that we can do something about it. Right. Whereas and it, like in the, in the purely idealist conception, um, it's just a fact of humanity and therefore there's nothing we can do. Yeah. I'm very uninterested in like human nature, um, as a thing, um, uh, like, or any sort of nature, nurture divide as being the fulcrum. Like we don't even need to talk in those terms, but exactly. And I think, um, the idea that we, just because it can, we can all perform these kind of bad habits doesn't therefore mean it's like on the individual just within the individual to deal with their own head and be like oh don't worry i killed the cop inside my head now you do you and you do you and you do you then we'll be fine like it has to be collective because these are collectively fostered behaviors fascist is fascism is necessarily fostered through certain types of interactions and collectivities which is why antifa as when it comes to confrontational tactics, philosophically makes sense. If you understand fascism as something that is driven by this sort of perverted desire around power um, and can only work when you're given, when given the space to breathe and be in these kind of group settings, be it online, be it in, you know, a square around uh, an old racist statue on a horse. Um, these these are collective spaces that then foster these tendencies. So actually disrupting them and making material consequences, making it very unpleasant to be a Nazi, is an actually philosophically sensible thing to do. It's not just, oh, it's defensible as a tactic. It actually makes sense if you understand, I think it makes sense if you understand fascism not as a well thought out, here, I've decided what's the best ideology, and it is being a massive racist. It doesn't work like that. So in that sense, then, if I, if I follow your argument, anti-fascism isn't nearly, merely a reaction to a particular situation or a group of people or circumstances. It's actually in the course of collective organizing against that, that uh, people can form you know, new ways of living. It's, it's, a, it's as much of a productive uh, process as it is one that's reactive. Yeah, I like hopefully, right? Like it if you have if you have kind of good community care and learning to like live and love together hippies. Um <laughs> then yes, these are these are these are the kind these are non-fascist habits. These are productive, these are communal, these are that's the kind of communism that works specifically against 
fascist assemblages, as well as actively breaking up those assemblages. All right. So let's get specific on that. Yeah. Um, can you give us some of your 10 rules for anti-fascist living? No. <laughs> I can't. I don't have any. So like, um, uh, but stuff like street actions, um, deplatforming, uh, other, uh, other practical actions you've written about. Like, I, I do like the idea of like an anti-fascist uh, self-help book. You know, like a oh, Jordan Peterson someone thing. Someone should do years. that. Yeah, like cool. the anti-Jordan Peterson. Yes, anti- exactly. I mean, Not yeah, written by Gigi, don't, Okay, don't debate Nazis. Because first principle, when someone has, like, it's for... Their first principle as racism, this is not up for debate. Um, it sets the fulcrum in the wrong place. And it also will not, liberal desire for like truth speaking will not disrupt racist a priori that racists hold. Deep, so deplatforming works. And we've seen deplatforming work, right? Like we've seen Richard Spencer's career just go down the toilet. Like he cannot go to a university anymore. And he's like, he openly said, like, it's Antifa's fault. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful video a, when you see yeah, it. Yeah, and he's just so butthurt. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. And that is because that is not because, lovely as he is, that's not because Guardian journalist Gary Young was like, you don't even know how racist you are, do you? <laughs> yeah. um, in a video. And then what else? So uh, I think seeking to know, locate violence in the right place, right? If Don't buy into the media narratives that a protest, protesters turn violent if things become confrontational after, you know, the police have murdered another black child, um, the violence is already there in that circumstance. In any circumstance where people have to say that black lives matter, we are living in violence. Those people are living in a state of constant violence. And to ask people in that state to then turn away from violence, like, that's not an option. Like, why can't you be peaceful? Like, they don't, you can't, where is peace there? Like, there is no background of peace. Um, So to demand peace when there is none is um i think this kind of cruel nimbyism who was um, the who was the young kid that uh was killed in baltimore freddie gray freddie gray yeah. yeah so they had a term for the way that freddie gray was killed by the police which is a rough ride yeah which goes to show you that you know putting somebody in the back of a, a police van and you know with no seatbelt on and driving like crazy around the streets and knocking them around they have a term for it and it's a form of violence that is not just systemic but also ongoing and has been for a very very long time so like he he happened to be killed in this particular instance but it's not like the cops in that van invented this form of terror against black people in this community right and actually there's um i should just probably bought the book with me. I don't have my book with me. But there's a, um, I, I recall in one of the essays when I'm talking about, um, you know, how terribly the media, the kind of institutional media frames riots and uh, counterviolent protests um, when it comes to Black Lives Matter and related um, uprisings that Angela Davis said in an amazing interview in 1972, I think. And she, someone asked her, like, what do you think about the problems of violent tactics and and shouldn't we all be nonviolent? And she was like, you know, you, you, you can't ask that. You can't come here and say, what do you think about nonviolence to people who have never had a chance to, to step away from, from totalized violence and totalized policing. Um, and you know, the fact that Angela Davis still has to say that so many years later shows us that these are kind of perennial unfinished misframings of where what what nonviolence and violence actually means is a binary that ass um i think we talked about that a lot in your last appearance too all the different 
the different places where people are not seeing violence, mm. the violence of the status quo, the violence yeah. of capitalism. And I think that um, segues really well into what we're talking about now. Um, all right. I have another question. They will probably be resolved in the fact that I just didn't quite understand the argument you were making in the book. So Go on. <laughs> you talk about the shortcomings of the rights discourse mm-hmm. as most of our quote unquote rights are only protected by the state to the extent that they don't challenge the power of the state. Um, but we're living in a time when plenty of people don't think they deserve anything at all. Like I'm thinking about all these like we are the 53 percent people who are like we will get nothing and we like it. So how can we convince people that they deserve more and should fight for more? without some concept of human rights as like a bellwether of where to ask them to go. And what about the idea that we can use the state's own discourse to show its essential hypocrisy, as you also talk about in that chapter, right? Like the only way to fully deliver on those enlightenment values, like, you know, liberty, egalite, fraternite, whatever, whatever. Yeah, exactly. um, Is to overthrow wage labor private property and the state um, and, and and using these uh, these terms that everyone has at least some kind of passing familiarity with. So in the essay where I talk about rights and, and just because you, you guys are like hearing us, not, not not looking at the word, we're not talking about like the right, we're talking about rights as in human rights. Um, it's not that I think we should abandon talking about human rights. Um, I just think we have to be like with everything tactical and understand what sort of legal and um, principled or valued object that they are. Um, So for one thing, the set of things that we have as individual rights now are a pretty impoverished set of things. They don't include things like economic rights. So, um, you know, a lot of 20th century moral philosophers and theorists did, did think that, you know, we should have, we should organize around human rights, but have far more robust notion of that. And I'm fine with that. But in the current state of affairs, we have a pretty limited set of things that that are your rights um, and that the state will recognize and and protect as such. You've got to use those when you can, right? So let's take, for example, which I do in the book, the, the J20 defendants. So they were in this infirm mass arrest, um, big kind of kettled by police. And so, of course, in court and when dealing with the state, when the state is your interlocutor, you got to speak the state's language. And that language includes, in a legal setting, rights. So you're like, I, I have the right to assemble and protest. I have First Amendment rights here, me, J20 protester. And in court, I will call upon that. And that's correct and sensible. I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely not. Don't throw babies out of things. Um, <laughs> such a weird phrase. Um, Violent, really. It's really horrid, actually. It's, like, it's not what I mean by family abolition. Um, <laughs> and, but obviously, we can't have an entire politics organized around just defending the rights we have and just acting on that which is protected in a rights framework. So... Richard Spencer, technically, under the kind of very heavily protected First Amendment, is absolutely in his rights to go out and organize a neo-Nazi rally. Um, and that, that is just absolutely true. 
um, I have no right to punch him. I feel like I have an obligation to. Um, so sometimes what is just and correct does not map onto what is legal. Um, and so we, we don't want our politics, I don't think, to be constrained just by what is organized as protected under a rights framework. Um, because that's the state's game, essentially. So in the same way, I am very, and this is often under, misunderstood, I think, about what a lot of anti-fascist activists are doing when they're deplatforming or shutting shit down. They're not asking the state to be a better censor. They're not really, I mean, not the anti-fascists I know. It's not really in anti-fascist practice to be like, dear government, please enforce this for us. They take on the duty of making safe spaces safer by shutting down hate rallies and those kind of violences. Um, so that is a type of political acting that doesn't work out within the frame of rights. Um, so we have to be able to like expand our horizons beyond just respecting and living through rights. But of course, when you are dealing with the state, which inevitably we can't avoid in certain circumstances, yes, cling to your rights, protect your rights and use those. So it's not about let's get rid of a rights discourse. It's realizing that we have a pretty impo impoverished one as it is and it could be made more robust. And that um, just because we don't have a right, just because some of our actions might not be protected by the rights that we have and might indeed infringe on someone else's in a certain sense doesn't mean that that is the only mapping towards what is just and correct. Like we have to be more nuanced than that. Fair enough. And I guess you say in your book too, that it's um, sort of subjective and it's up to the time, the, the, the particular anti-fascist and the time and the place who really deserves uh, that kind of full fast treatment, mm -hmm. the deplatforming, the punching and who is mm, someone who might not agree with you, but still should have access to the discourse. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, I can't, in the same way, I can't give you a kind of perfect, full, and always applicable definition of the word fascism, but that's true of lots and lots and lots of words um, and concepts. Um, uh, there's no black and white line for me of like, oh, this person is deplatformable and shouldn't be debated this person and I, it's not up to me i know like the, yes the, the large antifa committee and when we go to our meetings <laughs> and do our votes and um well, what go to central planning but you know it's about organizers within the communities that are going to be then affected when someone's showing up so i like i can't set give you rules as rails for that which is the 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 reason why that little intro thing we did about the uh antifa second civil war and beheading white parents thing is uh funny and absurd on its face because it's taking you know the right wing's taking uh this nuanced you know position that you know anti-fascists take about in what instances do you use certain actions and just taking those to the complete absurd you know that uh you know antifa wants to you know beat up maga moms or something yeah. like that you know in the streets or, or oh, behead yeah. what i don't know take but, everyone's yeah. guns away and this is yeah. also the thing that's like because it's off it is often like sort of liberals who panic about this like so so what about the slippery slope so you know right. no one can no one can speak in public if they're wearing a maga hat now like were you you are the real that and then they get the like anti is the real fascist first of all it's also like really unempirical like i've not we don't see lots and lots of just normal republicans getting shut out of airways and not being able to talk and not being able to give speeches 
actually like it's if you, if you leave it up to anti-fascist organizers they seem to be pretty good at saying like nope that person is really 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 neo-nazi and really 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 violent and really really dangerous ideologically or physically um and so we don't have this like mass kind of mission creep of everyone who's to the right of us getting immediately beaten up every time they try and hold a rally um i think you see a lot of communal consensus building around who can and should be deplatformed, um, even though there isn't a strict set of committee rules. Um, and at the same time, what you do also see, nonetheless, is that you see a growing and growing and growing and a very, very t- terrifying uptick in white supremacist racist violence. So the idea that there's mission creep on the anti on the left side is completely nutty. Um, but the idea that that it isn't something that does take kind of deliberation, community response, discussion, um, is also, you know, that is that is clearly key. Oh, yeah. It's also it's also fascinating too that they're afraid of the mission creep on our side. And it was only what, seventeen, eighteen years ago that John Yu wrote those uh, as a White House counsel, uh, wrote the uh, legal papers, you know, justifying the state um, torturing people uh, to the point where I think crushing somebody's testicles if there was a um, a nuclear bomb and they knew where it was, you know, this, these very kind of outlandish situations mm. that was actually enshrined in the in the state's powers, you know, after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So to be uh, hand wringing about what, you know, some, you know, People dressed in black might or may or may not be doing out in the streets at any particular time when you have the U.S. supporting a proxy war in Yemen that's like murdering mil- not millions but thousands and thousands of people and starving them. It's just it's really a, it's really a bad frame because it really misallocates where that power mm-hmm. actually is and what, oh, yeah. what slippery slopes we should be thinking about. Oh yeah, we're yeah. we're in no danger. I mean, I. I don't think it's danger ever, but if, you know, when liberals say this to me, like, how, why should I trust you crazy communists and anarchists? Like, we're in no danger of communism or anarchism coming to pass <laughs> in our lifetime. We are in danger of right-wing authoritarianism. Right, we're and in it. I mean, in all it. of the steps towards communism and anarchism are things that you guys probably like. Right. So maybe we should have a little unity right now. Yeah. Okay, but to push back on that a little bit, the, the conceit of, like, the black bloc and anarchist action and, and Antifa is, like, we, this is a vision of what a revolution would look like. Like, we're going to have uh, people under this banner, under this flag, rising up in, in the masses and uh, radically change society. So rather or not that's a plausible vision, that's what's implied by it. And I think this is kind of what the book transitions to in in the later parts when you talk about being in a marriage with uh, a guy who kind of like uses queer theory to like subjugate you in Mm -hmm. these ways to his desires. That's that's kind of a complicated segue. (laughs) But but my point is like, so yeah, obviously conservatives are arguing in bad faith when they look at Antifa and they say this is a slippery slope. They just want to kill all Republicans or whatever. But then you have anti-fascists who like say shit like that and talk about how they want to put people in gulags and liberals get the bullet too and stuff like that you know bad rhetorical choices that they don't have any yeah. power to do but there is this um this like i i guess we might say i wouldn't call it a fascist desire but this desire to control and dominate implicit in the desire of of controlling what kind of speech happens on a college campus or something like that i think if you to make the connection between these kind of conversations um slippery slopes and also the way in which, yeah, like ra- ra- radicals or self-proclaimed radicals are, cert- are certainly 
capable of reiterating the violences they claim to fight. I mean, that's of course possible, and especially if we understand that like no, no one is pure and, and not at risk of that just because they can put on a bandana and smash a Starbucks window or be a great community organizer in other capacities against, you know, the police state or against uh, ICE, um, you know, the idea that then someone is an unimpeachable character and has good politics in all spheres of their life is obviously, and like many people who've been in radical communities uh, will will know that. And that's why we also need the kind of communal practices and ways to be together in a way that like that can also be dealt with um, well. And I don't think we do have a good system for that. So yeah, when I say in the book, um, I, it's like, you know, I use my ex um, and my experience with him when I was super young. I was like 22 when I met him. He was 34, pretty well like established in the anarchist scene in New York um, and like kind of a well-liked guy, very smart guy. Um, and, you know, that we were together a long, long time and he he kind of treated sex and like what, what would could be called and would be like radical sex so like threesomes you know queer sex kink or what kind of threesomes <laughs> i mean some fun just but like just normal <laughs> i guess what i'm getting at is um guys like to say that they're woke but the threesomes that they usually want to have is like two girls and i know i mean we, we did we, i mean okay so tmi but we did both but mainly two girls but he also spoke a big game about being queer and like was almost never not that i'm interested in being like show me how queer you are how many penises have you put in your face um you know i'm not interested in that kind of thing either but to be like fair that is how you introduced yourself to me all the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how many penises have you put in your face how um, many you got <laughs> <laughs> but i think um you know we do have to be nervous about when posturing towards a certain thing actually traits the very violences it claims to be against so i was super young he i only had done like analytic philosophy and like carnap and stuff and i'd never even read foucault when i met this guy so he was like "Ooh, welcome bro do you even read foucault bro, have you even read foucault um google foucault folks <laughs> and so and there was this so it was this whole like oh radically rethink the world great um but this idea that somehow the meeting of certain bodies in certain ways necessarily would be liberatory um as opposed to could be is i think a really problematic way in which we now frame like the personal is political because look if you think of it that way then you're seeing like the revolution happen in burning man and clearly it isn't like it doesn't oh man burning man is openly counter-revolutionary exactly so grover, grover norquist loves it maybe he's on the right side of history and this is one of those things like i do think there was a moment where sex positivity and those sort of way like personal choices were then framed as necessarily politically radical um and obviously like who gets to be with whom and how and who gets to have sex with whom and how you're able to organize your life is crucial and political and is very much about the sort of things we need to be concerned with but i think if we organize our politics around how we fuck and shifting desire like shifting badly coded desires by just being like okay i i know i should be more queer because like 
heterotypical life is bad and, and bourgeois, so I'm going to find another girl and have sex with her. And I'm like, no, wait, you've suddenly just used someone in a neoliberal experiment of self-improvement. So, like, um, and, you know, other writers have written about this stuff too, like um, Amiya Srinivasan and Andrea Longchu, about this problem of, like, you know, we have bad desires because we were not born into, like, a lovely utopian full communism we're born into the world as it is now which is organized around pretty shitty hierarchies um and so thus are we um you know who else says that is foucault Uh, no way (laughs) (laughs) thanks ex-husband for teaching me all about foucault no but it's true Uh, but yet just because you can um understand that and speak about that doesn't mean you therefore aren't also conditioned to like just because you can articulate what foucault articulates and how our desires are determined by certain regimes of power and truth doesn't mean you can therefore immediately think your way or fuck your way out of it. Um, and therein lies kind of spaces for abuse. People that don't realize that, yes, we do also need to do a lot of abolishing and challenging and interrogating the ways in which we are formed and which structures are upheld. And we can't just like dive into practices and living as if we weren't also constrained yeah so so then how do you reconcile that because i think some people want to wall off uh capitalism and the material with uh other things like patriarchy or they want to wall off the traditional workplace from you know social reproduction because they're like you know what your desires are your desires there's no point problematizing it you can't change it it's there's no point um and some people don't want to think about it at all because, you know, once you start thinking about it, it's easy to drive yourself insane, yeah. realizing, oh, all of the things that I like were put there in my head by bad people. <laughs> and I like, why do I like to wear makeup? Would I have chosen that for myself if I was living in a society where that's not like symbolizing goodness and prettiness? Like, no, of course not. I wear makeup because people think I'm hot when I wear makeup mm-hmm. and like, you can drive yourself insane thinking about all that shit. So yeah. like, how do you how do you balance those things and how do you reconcile them? I so think you can, it's like, really do- it's really life. hard, right? Because I mean, you you do need to be self. We all need to be self critical and, and communally critical and collectively critical. We can't live in hypotheticals. Like, what would I have wanted anyway? Like that that I doesn't exist. Like I don't. There is no pure Natasha oh. Leonard living in full communism. This, like, I just want what I want and I therefore need to be validated through my desires is is also, like, deeply problematic, right? Because, like, I just only, like, X, Y, Z sort of body in person is, like, the just is really problematic there. It's like, no, you do because, you know, a lot of our desires are determined by, you know, things very much outside of ourselves that make ourselves. Um, But that doesn't mean you can just think, you can't think your way out of it. You can experiment and see if you might like differently but then again you have to be cautious that you're not using people in some sort of like self-revelation 60s free love like find myself bullshit which I think a lot of sex positive culture has become importantly like and you can be really critical like well you can be self-critical and you can drive yourself mad but I think when it comes to political action I personally just don't think putting all your politics into desiring differently will produce different desires. I think if you organize around creating a better world with, you know, people's needs being met and having to work less and having different sorts of, and having all lives like respected and given dignity, then different desires might well be produced, right? Because the problem we're pointing to is that 
society as is produces certain sets of desires that are problematic. Yeah, so what if society were to shift? And you made an incredible uh, example of that in discussing porn in that chapter. You, you referenced some, I don't know, studies or articles that said, wow, look at all these categories of porn that exist now. Mm. This demonstrates that young people are unleashing or opening their desires in a, a liberatory way. And your response to that is absolutely not. Like just the access to more different kinds of bodies and kinks in porn only means like an expanded exploitation of uh, sex workers and porn actors through uh, these like free porn tubes, right? Right. Um, so like it's okay. So it's good that maybe people are like having that desire, challenging yeah. their like seeing. Oh, maybe I'm into something I didn't. I never knew I would be into. But if that's still in the schema of like exploiting workers and then also reifying like racial and gender hierarchies Tropes, in these yeah. categories. Right. Um, so those, a porn to, workers a living wage. And to bounce right. off of that too, to, to categorize it on you porn or whatever site you prefer also in a sense encloses, you know, that, that category of sexual expression into a particular mode, right? right. Oh yeah. But the categories on you porn are not problematic or anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not like that I've, you observed. know, like, Milf, big black cock is what's the big deal. I mean, no, this is the thing. It's like, jobs for POC. <laughs> but this is the thing. It's like, I mean, I definitely, I'm to be clear for people who haven't read me, sex workers work and needs to be decriminalized and labor rights for all. Um, Far more controversial uh, opinion than you'd think of yeah. a left these days, unfortunately. But, uh, um, go on, but go yeah, on. so I'm, my pro- when I talk about exploitation, it's not because I think porn per se is exploitative more than any other labor. It just has become, as Andy points out, um, a very, very, very threatened industry by these major tube sites, free tube sites that are mostly owned by one content giant, MindGeek, um, that mean that actors have very little say over where the kind of clips from their content ends up. And, um, you know, all these little clips get broken up and, and fed to the public in these really reductive categories like, you know, she-male, big black cock, really racist, ageist, transphobic categories. Um so the the fact that like, oh, there's this kind of plethora of desires being reflected, we then have to ask how and through which economic systems are these then being processed and who's getting hurt here? And like often it is workers. Um, so I think my my nervousness is again to this like quite liberal celebration of diversity and inclusivity that doesn't talk about actual inclusivity in terms of like if you had real inclusivity you wouldn't include poor people because there would be no poor people right because if, if poor people are included there are no poor people in sort of class inclusivity hey, we've got milfs of every color <laughs> exactly okay. and it's like this so i think that kind of questioning what 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 would it mean to talk about like radical desires and desiring differently for me it certainly isn't just like yes more kind of strict categorized labeled ways of breaking up people and the world um then channeled through a tube site that is owned by a content giant like that's not my liberation even if some of it looks really really kinky um so i think a lot of not just focusing on like the like presentation of different desires and the presentation of different ideas of like sexuality and like bodies being together um sorry that was a bit rambling uh yes i think just this the focus on what looks like radical expression of sexuality is is really problematic when we're not talking about 
the material. Yeah, I um, I agree with you. Um, and at the same time, like, okay, I think maybe the work that we're doing to change society should be like mm, 90% the base and maybe 10% in the superstructure, right? Because we've seen in the past just changing the material base doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a more socially progressive society, right? I'm thinking of like Stalinism or oh, other yeah, versions not saying, of communist thought. I'm not saying ignore everything except literally like supporting people's material needs. Like absolutely not. But as you point out, there is this kind of intractability of being like, I know my desires are badly framed. I want to frame them differently. And just focusing that as that notion of, oh, if I can just choose slightly differently, therefore the person is political ignores that that's not that's a really useless and like terrible misuse that's very common of that phrase now like the personal is political i'm much more interested in who gets to be a person how and what are considered choices that people can make and how so it's not just every personal choice is therefore political i'm interested in what kind of person gets to be and what gets to be a chooser and i think that's how we should be framing the personal is political not just like i made a personal choice but because the personal is political it's therefore a political choice i'm so radical and to tie this uh these conversations together you do have a section in your book where you talk about the state recognition of marriage Mm. and also what it means to be a green card holder Mm -hmm. and what it means to actually get that you want to talk a little bit about how the state uh intercedes in uh in everybody's love lives or the rights that they get uh out of their uh relationship yeah Yeah, and this this brings sorry we got a kick out of reading your description of the you know like the love detectives who work for the government Mm. who are supposed to like identify true love yeah and they're like so show me your bank account is what they do that's like some brazil dystopian level shit Uh, it's real it's really real yeah like can i show them a video of the time uh sean threw his back out and i helped him pee in a bottle because that's what love means to me and they'll be like no i don't care show me your bank account and that because they want this as like love as asset merger but um but yeah so i this uh, this person this horrid man um i've had more than one horrid man by the way like i just yeah, this guy was like around for a while um i i we got married because we were very much in love and we lived together and i um yeah you hear that feds yeah i mean we did it was real <laughs> you, the thing is what's also funny is that like they can't get you now, like right? fake marriages don't usually end up with like both people in hospital. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> read the book to find out. No, um, but uh, but that's true, right? It was so real that it was like real and violent, like most married, <laughs> like so many marriages. Um, that's how goddamn real mine was. But maybe you just went that extra mile. I just really to wanted it. to like like to take that America. Um, but yeah, so you it. The, the, this question of like state recognition. What what does the state recognize as as person? Right. Brings in a lot of what we're talking about today and what's dealt with in the book, both questions of rights. Um, what When we can't help but being in interlocution and therefore responding to state categories, um, how we can use them, what we can change in them and when like what's good there and productive and what just needs to be abolished so you guys are married i loved your wedding i love i love this unit this is a wonderful thing um and you know when uh gay people are granted the right to get married that is huge like the obfuscation ruling was huge not because it means that we live in this kind of beautiful 
panacea of free love and everyone being able to be and be with who they want. It's important because we are in a sad state of affairs wherein the state recognizes the marital unit above all else so who gets to who gets to live in that and how and who gets recognized there and i'm obviously uh you know from england uh and i'm white and i have and i'm privileged so i am not exactly like under the gun from the state when it comes to you know trying to to to, to live here and, and be a permanent resident um not like not nearly as terribly as so so many hundreds of thousands of people and what they're facing especially under this government but you see the process of what it looks like to prove to the state that you're like a legitimate unit and a legitimate person. And when it comes to marriage, according to the state, you are, they're not, it's not like the Der- Gerard Depardieu movie when they're like, oh, what color is his toothbrush? Um, there's like, it is literally like, oh, do you have a shared bank account? Is he on your insurance? Do you have the same address? Like if we owned a house, that would be like, so married. If we'd had a baby, like, oh, they would have loved that. Like shared lease, like show me how much you like own together is what they, they really want. Like that is the asset merger they want to see. Um, so, and then understanding that, but then understanding that like, if you don't play that game, families can't stay together. People can't be here. And they, you know, the, it's one of the, the most, it's one of the most like surefire ways beyond kind of having a job, which is obviously if you have a work visa, that's far more precarious. Like if you, if you want to stay and be with the person you love, you have to be recognized as married couple. And, and that's it. Um, so it's this, you know, you have to play the state's game and it's not a pleasant one. So it's with limited but necessary celebration when we see more and more people included in that. But we have to recognize the need for that expansion, the need for an expanded um, recognition by the state of who can and be together and stay together legally. But also understand that that's a really problematic game that we have to navigate and not one we necessarily want to be too celebratory of yeah but also like yeah if people want to get married just have a wedding and i'm like i'm i i definitely find it very boring when people are like oh that's so backwards like i'm just like oh shut up we'll definitely uh, come to your wedding so if this me uh, and and tosh will we'll we'll come to your wedding (laughs) yeah we'll drink all the alcohol and he can come too we might make abolition jokes but like we'll be at your wedding we'll make make it a cool wedding okay we'll make it a woke wedding. i'm really good i was gonna say that if this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out but we want to stay in media instead of like going and doing other things maybe we can pitch the show love cop it could be a reality TV Love show up. about uh, federal uh, immigration officers who go out on uh, special ops to figure out uh, people how much, really belong together. Yeah, how much they're in <laughs> if love. If it's true love or if not. It's true love. That the, would be the, the only kind of cops that I accept. <laughs> you have that like, cop in your head. Like, yeah, I love, I love the, I love the idea Some of him like knocking. It's like, honey. He doesn't love you. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, I'm from the USCIS. <laughs> oh, man. I think they could use one of those in that show, uh, 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, what is that? Um, you were talking about that. And I watch so much so, shows. It's so sad. I mean, no, don't call the love cops on these people because most of these people are clearly... All right, I'll tell you what it is real quick. It's like kind of like the mail-order bride deal where there's like, okay, you have 90 days after you get engaged to get married or leave the country. What? Basically. Is this real? This is an yeah. actual television show. Yeah. So they have... But these... so they do it with it, like immigrant 
partners. Yeah, yeah, immigrant partners. Um, and some of them are clearly just like mail order brides who just want to be in this country. Yeah, and then Fine. it's kind of it's kind of fucked up because it's like this like dorky guy who's getting taken advantage of and who thinks she really loves him, and then she's like, oh yeah, I want. I didn't a realize life that was myself. the mail order bride demographic. But That's wait, oh, do yeah. they <laughs> then they? But then, they, then they—if they stay, then they stay and they, they get, get green married. card and they get married. Yeah. But then, but then, like this, surely in their like USCIS interview, they're like, "How did you meet?" And they're like on a TV show about getting to this country. <laughs> like, how's that work? I'm not sure how that works. How, like, how are they like? Oh, cool, that sounds legit. We'll have to have a, a Seems feeling. like you really love each other because TV said so. Actually, it probably does work. I don't know. All right, the next uh, thirty minutes of the show, we're gonna put on uh, ninety day fiance, and we're just gonna stream it and uh, comment over it. I would love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would, would actually be a fun bonus would that be good or content? stream or something. Yeah. We'll invite Tasha. It'll be great. Yeah, it'll be great. So cool, cool ideas. Um, but like, <laughs> we're not doing that. But like, yeah, when when you talk about family abolition, uh, I'm really glad you made this point because it can sound sort of negative and scary, mm. just the term to people. Like, you want to get rid of the family? It's like, it's, I don't want to take anything away from anyone. It's just who, like yeah. Alex Jones said, you know, this is the one. Even even on the left, they're like, this is the one good thing that we have that's like safe from the market, even though it's. Really not. As we discussed, everything is political. It's the typical, you know, it's the historical role of it actually was, you know, this idea of Victorian motherhood and the bourgeois family in the late 19th century really was, you know, the the one place after all the travails of the marketplace, selling your labor or buying things where it was there was quote unquote safety and security and quiet. I'm going to make an analogy because this kind of reminds me of when we went to a talk by Silvia Federici the great Marxist feminist. Mm -hmm. And someone asked her a question about abolishing gender. And she was like, I don't want to abolish gender. I want to make more genders. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on with family abolition too. Like you don't want to take away what people already have. You want to expand that, that that kind of love, those kinds of rights, that kind of fellowship to include all of humanity. Right. Right. I think this is the thing. Uh, I was just the historical materialism conference, the panel I was on, just recently um, talking about this stuff uh, and I actually really liked the way uh, Jules Gleason reframed it and she was like when I talk about family abolition what I really want to be talking about is essentially private property <laughs> um, so it's not it's not this denial that you can have kinship with your kin um, it's just a, a, a desire to disrupt kinship as a mode of maintaining property within certain inclusions and certain exclusions. So breaking that down. So it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to take away your family, but maybe I do want us all to take away your big family home. Like, and, um, and rethinking how, how property relations work with regards to kinship. But no, of course, um, as some of the discussions came up in that panel, it's so crucial and especially, you know, I hate the idea of a, a blustering anarchist talking about family abolition, not recognizing that, yes, families are being ripped apart at the border right now. Mass incarceration upholds a certain bourgeois, white, privileged family by ripping apart, you know, people of color's families um, for, for lifetimes and generations. Um, and that's always that's never been at odds with bourgeois family private property. So I think that's what, what abolitionists in the terms of the family form are interested in disrupting and also being able to give space, which something like the state recognition of marriage never will. The state will never work this way. We have to work this way. Understanding that 
bonds that aren't necessarily through family as we know it ties can be as valid so if we think about border separations i think we should be just as horrified by anyone being ripped apart put in put in a detention center and then being removed and deported back to where they struggled to leave um that's that's the horror in itself it's not necessarily more horrifying for someone to be removed from their mother than the carer that's looked after them so i don't think it's understandable and it is horrifying that we're talking about family separation but we should also just be talking about like caging and people struggling to survive um and i don't think we it would be lovely to have a politics wherein a family bond doesn't take all precedence over other kind of lived kinships and communities um so yeah it's it's about expansion as opposed to you know you can't love your mummy um and you know and also not and recognizing that a lot of people have very very painful relationships with their bio fam if you will but yeah. if you if you have a great relationship with your bio fam like you that's, keep that's beautiful um <laughs> if, if you like, like your mom you can keep her you can keep your mom <laughs> if you don't like your mom well, if you don't you can share mine to a mine's education really nice. center <laughs> but if you have two moms then the second one gets expropriated <laughs> <laughs> spread the moms around i think uh spreading the moms around is a good place to uh, hashtag no dad spread the moms around i, I gotta say tosh you coming on and, and talking about fascism and anti-fascism and um, love and also all these great topics. It's really good for our show, uh, for our listeners. The Super Soldiers, they know what we do day in and day out. What is this, episode 49 or some, wow. some shit? Yeah, Something like we're that. really doing it. But what you did, which was great by coming on, is that you proved to those people who we know have never listened to our show even once, but talk shit about it only being about Antifa, you proved them right. That all we talk about on Antifada is just Antifa. So, uh, yeah, what one episode. You really, really proved it. So oh, you're you welcome, so guys. See you at the next Super Soldier meeting. Yeah, we're oh, gonna, yeah. November 4th, uh, 2020. We'll try again. Amazing.